Welcome back to another episode of What the Dev. I'm Jenna Sargent, and today we're talking to a very special guest. If you've been tuning into Microsoft Build, you've already heard him talk today. He just gave the keynote speech, and in addition to being Microsoft's partner program manager, he's given talks all over the world and has three podcasts of his own. Here's Scott Hanselman. So I wanted to start off by talking about code spaces, since that is such a recent announcement and sure a lot of remote devs are interested in learning more about it. What exactly is Codespaces? The best way to talk about that is to back up and talk about how Visual Studio Code has been working lately. Have you ever used it with WSL or with containers locally on your machine? Typically, you know, you 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 get into Visual Studio Code and it's an editor, right? It's a it's a rich code editing environment. But then when you do things like IntelliSense or dropdowns for completion, you need a language service. So if you're writing Python or C sharp, and you type foo dot, a dropdown pops down, and it needed to get that information about like what methods you wanted to get, where would it get that from? Well, Visual Studio Code doesn't own that. The language service that provides that information to Visual Studio Code does it. Just like Word has dictionaries and grammar and stuff, Visual Studio Code has all these language services, and those are brought in with extensions. Visual Studio Code is architected such that you can split those things apart. So what if you could take a language service and an extension and remote it from the UI. So then I could be on a Windows machine like I am right now, and I could open up like WSL2, the subsystem for Linux, and have the language service run inside that. So I could be inside Visual Studio Code, do some stuff, and have the language service provide the the list of methods, the context, the all the information about my environment lives in another place. So it's effectively the client serverization of Visual Studio code, splitting it into two halves, the headless part, the VS Code server, and then the UI part. So then you can do that with Docker or containers. And if you can do it with Linux or you can do it with Docker and containers, well, then you could do it like elsewhere entirely. You could use the cloud. So I could be on an underpowered machine, have all of the UI and the Visual Studio Code stuff happening locally, but then all of the meat happens up in the cloud. Well, then Visual Studio Code is written in Electron ultimately and written in TypeScript, and the UI runs within that browser, uh, that, that browser renderer, that web view context. What if all of that lived online, and you know I send you, uh, Jennifer, a link to some code, and I say, hey, can you debug this for me? And you're like, eh, I don't really want to set up my machine. It's like a whole thing, and all your NPM packages, and like, blah, right? You getting onboarded or ready to work on my code base is just like, ugh, no fun. But if you could just go, and instead of saying get clone, you would just say open in code spaces. We fire up a Visual Studio Code UI. We fire up uh, a backend container, a development container with the extensions that you need, with the language services that you need. Then you would just literally drop into a place that you could run the code and debug the code. Your onboarding time would be effectively... Mm-hmm. I know that was a long, rambly explanation, but you can start to like see how you could tease those things apart, and suddenly it's not just browsing code on GitHub or running around and doing stuff in Visual Studio Code. It's like, oh, I want to be in a running environment of that right now. Bloop, and then I'm in. And we fire all of that VS Code server up in the, in the, with the power of the cloud. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Codespaces used to be called Visual Studio Online. Is that true? The brand, the branding is a little interesting. Right now, there's GitHub Code Spaces, and it's powered by Visual Studio Code and Code Spaces. The 
branding for Visual Studio Online, I guess, is now Codespaces, and that was announced at Build today. I think it's a cooler name, actually. I do, too. <laughs> Can you go a little bit into some of the, the interesting features of Codespaces? So the idea that I can, the fundamental concept, the fundamental thing that's most interesting is what we just mentioned, which is that I can drop into anywhere and be, be productive. The future is what else could we potentially add that would allow you to do stuff that you couldn't do locally. So once you have the power of the cloud, then you can start throwing the elastic power of it at this. Um, you know, I could have a $300 Walmart laptop and suddenly have the power of a $4,000 developer workstation. That's the, the kind of the first initial one. The second one is that we could start applying all of the power of the Visual Studio language services, IntelliSense, IntelliCode, that's the AI-empowered uh, IntelliSense, at potentially really large code bases, and also the ability to open, uh, for enterprises, really large projects. Sometimes we'll hear people say, oh, you know, I love Visual Studio, I love Visual Studio Code, but my project is 400 Project. You know, my solution is 400 projects. That's that's too big. So those kind of that's too big problems. We can throw we can throw cloud power at it. And then of course we can also add um, Visual Studio um, Live Share. So you could go and jump into the system. You're in the code, and then you could invite me to a live share, and I could then follow along, and we could share a cursor in Code Spaces using Live Share rather than you sharing your screen to me and pushing pixels around you're going to basically push language context around. That's got to be like a complete game changer for teams that have been distributed all of a sudden. Yes. Where they can't, they can't be collaborating in the office together, but they can be collaborating through Visual Studio. You, you, you picked up on it immediately because we keep saying, well, hang on, let me share my screen. Okay, can you see my screen? And I'm sitting here with all these, these 4K monitors, and I'm looking at someone else's 4K monitor that they're shoving pixels around and they have a different theme and they have different hotkeys and they have, and then they really want me to help. And yeah. you probably do screen sharing all the time, but do you ever really do the thing where they re, um, request control and they give you control of their machine? I don't want control of your machine, right? I don't know your whole thing. I don't know your hotkeys. I want the code and the context. I don't want your pixels. So yeah, absolute, absolute game changer. And, and also a lot lower bandwidth. Because I would be on my machine looking at your code base, but your code never comes over to my computer. And that's what's so cool about it. So when we think about that client-servertization, I made that word up, of Visual Studio, I run my client to Visual Studio. I type foo dot, and I wait for the, the dropdown. The context that gave me that dropdown and the, the filling of that dropdown with the, you know, the autocomplete came from you. You become the server in that, in that example. Total game changer. Now people just need to change their, um, the gestures that they use. So instead of clicking on the share my screen button, you click on the share my code button. I want to also talk about the two major command line related offerings, which are WSL2 and Windows Terminal. Mm -hmm. Let's start off with WSL2, since I believe that's shipping with the May update of Windows 10. Yeah, that should ship with that. We announced it this morning. Can you explain what WSL2 is and what the architecture changes are from WSL? Sure. So people want to run Linux processes on Windows, and there's effectively two ways to do that. And there's now currently two flavors of WSL. WSL, of course, the Windows subsystem for Linux. 
version one kind of came out with much fanfare. And what it does is it creates what's called a Pico process, a tiny process that actually shows up in uh, Task Manager. So if you ran WSL and if you're running Windows, if you ran WSL and you ran like Top or Bash or VI, in the Task Manager you would see a Bash and a Top and a VI next to and alongside your Windows processes. Because WSL 1, basically we're lying to Linux when a system call happens, like let's say you're in VI and you try to open a file, and it call, makes a sys call and it says, hey, open a file. Linux needs a kernel to do the opening of a file. But with WSL1, there isn't a file. Windows says, eh, fine, I'll do it. And we basically redirect every sys call over to Windows, and Windows handles it for you. That's really great because it gives you tight integration with Windows, but it's also not really great because the perf is kind of mediocre and you end up with what's with a layered file system. So you've got the Linux file system sitting on top of the Windows file system. You've got to go through a bunch of bounce, bounce, bounce. So it's um, accessing Linux files with WSL1 is not super fast, but accessing Windows files with WSL1 is really fast. What then people said they wanted was a true actual Linux kernel. So Microsoft has a on GitHub the WSL Linux kernel. It's a real proper fork of the Linux kernel. It's a stable kernel. And we spin up not a Hyper-V VM like a and again, this is another good example where it's like, hey, Jennifer, go run Linux. And it's like, oh, 30-gig VHD, Hyper-V, wait five minutes. It's a thing, right? Firing up a VM is stressful. This is a tiny utility VM that starts in less than a second. So I can actually, on my machine, I'm sitting here right now, I hit bash, one, one thousand, two, and now I'm in, I am now running uh, Ubuntu on my machine. That tiny little utility VM actually doesn't even show up in Hyper-V, it's managed, it's lifecycle, it's memory grows and, and compresses automatically. Um, that is a real Linux kernel. So the syscalls are not virtualized to, to, uh, to Windows anymore. They're run directly through Linux. That gives us between 5x and 10x perf improvement when you're talking to the Linux file system on Windows. Combine that with what we just talked about, which is that client-server split of VS Code means that I could go into WSL, make some Node code, make some .NET code, do some Python, in in Linux on Windows, tell me what you think about this brain twister. You could type code space dot dot for the current directory, launch a Windows process, specifically Visual Studio Code, out of Linux. It then connects back over into Linux, and now you've got that client server. You're on Windows, the operating system that you enjoy, but you're editing and working in a Linux context, compiling, running your code in Linux context at effectively native speed. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's kind of bananas. Um, it is. <laughs> and it's going to take people a while to like, get their head around that. Because people, I mean, I don't know about you, but don't programmers like to say just. Isn't that just? Or, oh, well, I mean, didn't you just? I mean, nah, it's a little more complicated than that, you know? I'm actually going into Windows Explorer right now, and there's a tux. There's like a, if you go to this PC, you know, there's a, a Linux little dude now in my computer. That's how fundamental this change is. Mm-hmm. So are there any user differences or is it just like performance enhancements in the background? You mean like the user experience? Yeah, yeah. I think in the short term, just the consciousness that there are two versions and they have two different kind of reasons for living. There are some performance issues when WSL2, which has that full native speed, has to then remote back to Windows. It has to go kind of over a local network 
kind of a fake network thing. So your file systems um, access would be slower if you're going from Linux to Windows. That might take some people a little bit of time, but it is currently the number one thing that folks are, are working on. So the goal is to get WSL2 exactly at the same perf on the file system as WSL1, so there's no trade-offs, right? So at some future point, it'll just be WSL. Um, but it should, it should just work, right? It should feel comfortable, and you shouldn't have to think about it. It should just be natural. You're just like, oh yeah, go to the start menu, type bash. Let's move on to Windows Terminal. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what that is? Yeah, I hope I'm doing this at the right at the right level of nerd because uh, I like the I like hearing about you know like hey this is a nice car let's pop the hood and I don't know if everyone else wants to hear about that. Um, oh, they do. Okay, good. So when you type the start menu right now, and you type CMD, which is like traditionally the command prompt, you're actually we the the public myself included are conflating shells, terminals, and consoles. So we have to separate the thing that does user input, like the shell, uh, you know, bash or PowerShell or CMD or whatever, uh, the thing that drew the window around it, like the actual thing that drew the Chrome, the thing that drew the square, and then the, the management of all of that interaction. When you type CMD right now, you get a legacy um, application called con host, the console host. And it's been around for freaking ever. It's effectively unchanged since Windows XP. It generally sucks. Uh, the I.O. to the screen is synchronous. And it just makes people sad. Um, that is separate from all of those different shells. So, for example, if you go to the command line, you type PowerShell. You go to the command line, you type... You go to the start menu, rather, you type PowerShell, you type CMD, whatever. You're going to get that default con host. But the Windows terminal is a complete rewrite, complete reconception of a first-class terminal on Windows under which you can run n number of shells, okay? And that can be a little bit confusing as well until it's completely integrated and folks just start naturally using terminal rather than, than console. But one of the things that is really important to Microsoft is not breaking a billion machines. So we can't just, like, swap it out because there's a bunch of you know, people out there in enterprises that are counting on the console to work the way the console does. So, you know, they have to live and work together and get along. But the terminal lets you have tabbed uh, shells. It lets you have drop-downs, split screen. And it uses all the latest APIs to draw to the screen as, as fast as possible. So hard, basically a hardware-accelerated shell. And if you, uh, if you run the terminal, like I'll run mine right now, and it auto-populates that drop-down. So I've got nine different things. I've got PowerShell, Command Prompt, Ubuntu, Azure Cloud Shell, Kali Linux. All of those can be run side-by-side. Side. So it's the combination of WSL2 and N number of Linuxes, because you don't, you don't just want to run one. You want to run as many as you want to, plus all the existing shells on Windows, plus Azure Cloud Shell, plus the terminal that lets you basically do anything in that in that environment. And it's all open source and it's on GitHub, which is pretty sweet. Awesome. Have you, have you downloaded the terminal? I haven't. You got to promise me you'll at least try it. I'll try it. Okay. That makes me happy. I know we talked about code spaces earlier, mm -hmm. but are there any other new solutions or updates being announced that will make remote developers' lives easier right now? Remote? Well, you know, it's, everyone's talking about how everyone's remote right now, and I know we're all remote, and it feels weird. And everyone's come, because I've been a remote worker for 13 years, everyone's coming to me 
with like the remote worker questions. And I'm having to say that honestly, <laughs> remote work and quarantine work are so different from each other that like all my friends are like, oh my God, I'm a remote worker now. I'm like, man, hey, you're kind of a quarantine worker. It's not the same. It doesn't feel quite as awesome. Um, so I always have this emotional reaction to like the whole remote work thing because I feel like what we're doing right now is slightly different. But um, one of the things that was cool that we announced in my keynote uh, this morning was the uh, GitHub for mobile, which is pretty sweet. Some people have already been using this, but in the, in the keynote, uh, we actually have a call on Teams, and uh, Allison uh, shares her screen, but she shares it on her iPhone and shows me her GitHub mobile, so she can kind of just be in the, in the backyard or walking the dog or whatever, and then go and merge in a, um, a pull request or whatever. So it's kind of the, there's kind of this three-legged stool that is Windows, GitHub, and Visual Studio. And Windows has long been able to let you do things remotely. GitHub is where all your code lives. Visual Studio is where all your power is. And all three of those things kind of work together to enable the, the, remote, the remote developer. I also want to talk a bit about the actual event. With it being virtual, how can attendees make the most out of it this year? So... You know how the podcasting medium, you've been podcasting a while, I've been podcasting a while. When you when you are podcasting, do you think about it as being just you and I are on a on a call and like, you know, geeks hanging out or are you thinking about it as you are giving a presentation? I feel like the first one just because I don't do most of the talking. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's yeah, you you get to dodge away from that one. I <laughs> I think the thing is that right now we're on a a podcast. And I've got my radio voice, right? And I'm on a microphone, and you have headphones on, and I have headphones on. And it's, a, it's an intimate conversation with you, me, and one other person, the listener. Mm -hmm. But if I were giving a talk, I would be over here, and it would be big, and it's like, oh, welcome to Build, blah, blah, blah. You know, like it would be the pomp and the circumstance. But that's weird, because we're in our homes, and we have headphones on. So when we fundamentally sat down and thought about what Build needed to be, we wanted to figure out how do you scale something to many, many, many thousands of people without trying to pretend that we're all in a room together presenting to many thousands of people. So we decided to make it more more one-on-one. -on -one. So my keynote was like that. It's me and my friends and one other person who happened to also be on the call with us. And if you start from that, you know, that not the pomp and circumstance, but the the remote devs in the way that we work uh, on, on the regular where you throw a couple people on a team's call and you share your screen and you hang out and you have a good time fellowship and community and fun that's where it came from so we have a combination of of live events where people can watch a stream and it's kind of a one-to-many but we have lots of um, rsvp spaces where people can like rsvp for a slot sit down get help one-on-one -on -one with a project that they're working on. They could go into a room with 10, 20, 100 of their friends. We've got yoga, we've got the student zone. There's, there's interactions with humans that make you feel like you almost came to work for a new company and you're kind of onboarding and you're running around and going to all these different places without us trying to pretend that we're in an expo center, you know? Like we're, we don't have like a picture of an expo center with like fake rooms to click on and we're trying to pretend that nothing changed. So it's an acknowledgement of the situation while still making people with headphones on feel like they're 
their good friends are uh, are kind of chatting in their ear them. That's awesome. Thanks. I hope it works. Yeah, <laughs> I hope it does too. <laughs> Do you think we, we covered everything that is important to talk about for oh my goodness no event, no there's like an hour more and two hours more people will have to tune in next week for well, even what's more your, what's your what's your highlight what's your like takeaway that you want everyone listening to to get i think that if you have if if you think you know how to use windows that's a great question by the way thank you for it if you think you know how to use windows or you tried windows and then you left and you think you know windows return and we are building new power toys new launchers we're building gpu support into wsl you can run linux gui apps on windows now docker great docker support with help from docker desktop kubernetes with a checkbox i mean like windows is really killing it right now and i think folks oh and the new package manager winget i mean so much stuff in the keynote we're just getting started. Windows is a really great developer box. I enjoy it. Now, I've been a Linux head for 30 years, but I do very much enjoy uh, Windows, and I'm enjoying that uh, I can basically do anything I want on, on, like I said, on a $300 laptop now. And then you add in code spaces, and if, that, if there's any power that I don't have locally, I'll get that power from the cloud. So, yeah, I think the first step is try Windows, try Windows Terminal, start building your developer tools, and, uh, and, and maybe you'll like it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. Mm-hmm. My pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you're interested in learning more about some of the things we talked about, check out Microsoft Build. It's a free event. You can still register, and it's going to be running for the next 48 hours, so check that out. Thanks again to Scott for coming on the show. You can find him on his website, Hanselman.com, where you can find links to blog posts, his podcast, his YouTube channel, and much more. He's also on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, so you can search for him there. You can also find us on social media, and the links to all of our platforms are on our website, sdtimes.com.